Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Richard and I discuss the painful but critical role that slavery and hierarchy play in St. Paul's epistles. Reflecting on the same teaching in the Older Testament, we explore how the freedom proposed by the Pauline articulation of the cross differs from popular concepts of social freedom. While the gospel seeks to aggressively undermine human tyranny, it does so in a way that places as much pressure on the downtrodden as it does the oppressor, hardly the stuff of Hollywood legends. You're listening to the Bible as literature. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 30 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Recently, we've been talking a lot about the epistles of Paul and the ideas that keep coming out from those epistles. The way that the epistles are in our liturgy, they seem to get short shrift sometimes. We don't have feasts that go around the epistles. It's always around the gospels. But I think our conversations about Paul's epistles have been so fruitful. Just today, we were talking about slavery and how slavery works in Paul's epistles. And it's such a common theme. I mean, you see it in several of his letters. Can you just talk a little bit about what you've noticed in the way that Paul talks about slavery? Before I dive in, I do want to say something that I think we've reiterated in many and various ways in previous podcasts. The New Testament is systematic. It's a systematic whole that integrates with the systematic whole of the Older Testament. And there is a storyline to follow from one book to the next, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Now, another assumption that I make is that the system of the New Testament is woven around the Pauline school, the Pauline tradition. I don't know if I've been that explicit in the past when I've talked about Paul's letters, but I believe that the Pauline school is that around which the entire New Testament is woven. It brings the whole canon together. That's the story. The story is the teaching. And so, I find it very frustrating. People saying we shouldn't read the Bible or people dismissing the Bible, but especially St. Paul and especially the Older Testament, which for me is a point of pride that those who discredit the Bible don't like St. Paul and generally speaking don't like the Older Testament at all because those are the two most important axes in the entire tradition as far as I'm concerned. Not to mention it's about 90% of the pages. Right, which means at least they understand what they're rejecting. But usually when they come out with their glamorous critiques of the Bible, they talk about how the Bible contradicts itself. What is Paul saying about slavery? He seems to say in 1 Corinthians that slaves should seek their freedom, yet in Ephesians, Colossians, and elsewhere... He keeps telling slaves that they should submit to their masters. Which is it? Yeah, it's great that Paul says there's neither male nor female in Christ. But then how could he say in other texts, again, 
along with slavery, that wives should submit to their husbands? These are important questions. Now, most will read that and dismiss Paul and say the Bible is to be cast aside. Those who want to cling to the Bible because of nostalgia or religiosity will say, well, Paul couldn't have been right about everything. Maybe these are just dated opinions that he had, but the real issue is X. So they filter the Bible and suddenly you have something else other than the Bible. I really think it's important to make sure that we understand the context of each of those quotes. I mean, it's like saying if you were to take a single uh, Supreme Court justice and go through all of his opinions and say, oh, there's a sentence in one opinion that contradicts the sentence from another opinion, this justice has nothing to say. That's what they're doing. It's a form of proof texting that's easy to do because the Bible is so hyperbolic in its examples. It's written in such a way that no matter which culture it's planted in, there's tension and struggle with what it's saying. But if you accept the assumption that the text is an integrated whole, a system, which I think bears out in the content overall, then you have to deal with these contradictions. I don't think that Paul's statements about slavery are dated outliers, nor do I think his statements about the relationship between women and men are dated outliers. I don't think Paul is advocating the cultural values of the Roman Empire. Far from it. Paul is not advocating anything, humanly speaking. He's giving us the bread of life, the divine word, which means the burden is on the addressee of the text to figure out why Paul is saying here that, you know, go ahead and become free if you can be free. And over here he's saying submit. And you can never figure this out if you don't deal with the actual, as we were talking earlier, the actual content of each of his letters, which lay out a specific argument in a very narrow context. And then as you've done with the Book of the Twelve, take all of his letters and piece them together to see how it integrates into a whole. But it's more interesting than that because you can't really understand Paul unless you first go back to the Older Testament, which deals with the same questions. When Paul talks about slavery, he is exegeting the prophets in a Roman context. I get frustrated, and those, again, who have been with the podcast for a while have heard me repeatedly hit on the issue of hierarchy and authority with respect to the teacher. But it isn't just about teachers. It's about parents. It's about people with a particular station. It's so easy for people who buy into the propaganda of our culture and the propaganda of our times to assume that they are taking the moral high ground in their egalitarianism. And then they impose this on the churches. They impose this on scripture. But in doing so, they themselves are jeopardizing the teaching of the gospel because the gospel hinges on these questions. The gospel hinges on the tension of dealing with people in authority. So if you strip away the importance of authority and put everyone on the same level so that we can all be comfortable, the gospel cannot impregnate the church. Well, and slavery then makes no sense. Slavery makes no sense, and slavery is a key requirement of the teaching. It's funny, I just finished reading the Harry Potter series to my children, and my wife, every time I read this part of Harry Potter to the kids, is moved. And it's the scene in the last book where Dobby, a slave who was set free, now sacrifices his life 
for Harry is choosing out of love to put himself under Harry Potter. He was set free not to serve Harry Potter, but to serve love in freedom, which serves the station of Harry Potter. Dobby's service in freedom puts Harry to shame. And this is why Harry insists on digging the grave with his own hands in doing service that is unnecessary, humanly speaking, but necessary for love. And Harry learns the lesson of what it is to be a slave who is free, who is a slave to love, and not a slave to another human being. J.K. Rowling is exegeting 1 Corinthians. So getting back to Paul, as I said, you have to understand the Older Testament to understand why Paul is insisting on slavery in a Roman context. In the Older Testament, God is using Israel's opponents at all times in the prophets. And he does the same thing in the historical writings, but it's brought down to the level of the characters. Abraham is always dealing with the ancestors of the enemies of Israel in the story of origins and so forth. It's always the ones who you expect to be the savages who deal charitably with Abraham and his descendants. And it's the Israelites who are always the ones that are abusers. We've talked about this again and again. But in the prophets, God is always seeming to take the side of the people who he should be fighting. This played out very painfully for me in our discussion of Israel and Palestine. Because as a Palestinian, as much as it burns me and boils my blood, I have to accept that the only reason the Israelis have any power, and this is not an historical statement, it's a functional statement, is for the same reason that Pontius Pilate had power over Jesus Christ. Does that mean Pilate is right? Absolutely not. It means that I have to bow down. That's it. That's my place. So when Paul now addresses the issue of slavery, and he's talking to a Roman audience, where slavery is a main feature of the societal infrastructure, where the pater familias, the Roman patrician, is a pillar of the societal infrastructure, where his oppression of his wife is a mainstay in Roman society. How else is Paul going to hit at people with the gospel? You can't convince the Romans in late antiquity in the first century that the Assyrians are going to do any damage to them. So you come from another direction. You hit them where it hurts. And what's striking is that just as God hit Israel while it was down, Paul hit the slave and the oppressed woman while they were down. Yes. Hierarchy is oppressive, and the word of God was given to set you free from the tyranny of hierarchy, but you can't free yourself. Israel cannot take up arms against Pharaoh. In the same way, the slave cannot rebel against his master. You have to allow God to set you free, but the way that God sets you free is through his instruction, and all his instruction says is that you have to love one another, you have to love your neighbor. So. Slaves, the way that you are set free is by obeying the instruction, not by saying there shouldn't be masters, but by obeying the instruction to submit to your master. But know that if you are doing it out of deference to Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians, then you are not the slave of your earthly master. Now in 1 Corinthians, when he says, look, if you can become free, become free, never mind. It doesn't matter. You're dust to dust. This is all temporary. Now, to someone who believes in the power structures of the world, th this is a very problematic statement. This is why the cross is folly to them. 
Because when I say to you, who cares about government power, it's irrelevant, if you can't accept that statement, then you don't accept the cross. You believe that the power of government is real. And if you believe that the power of government is real, you don't accept that it's temporary, then you can't say never mind the way Paul says never mind. Then you cannot accept that there's a Roman patrician and you're going to organize a fight against the Roman patrician and we're back to square one. But if you accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you know that the station of the oppressor is temporary and you know that because it is temporary, the only thing that matters is the teaching which is eternal that instructs you to bow down in love, then you do it and then you are free and you are no longer dust to dust. That is why in 1 Corinthians he says passionately, stay as you are. Do not tell me that I have to change and do not tell me that you have to change. If you happen to have the opportunity to be free, knock yourself out. But you're gonna die soon anyways, so don't place your trust in that freedom because it doesn't matter. So it's, it's not necessarily better to be a slave. It's not necessarily better to free yourself. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. It's like when some ascetics tried to use Paul to say it's better to be single. Paul's not saying it's better to be single or better to be married. He's saying, Yanni, I don't care. It's irrelevant. For me, it's an advantage to be single because I can write my epistles. Just settle it. Get in a situation where you can function because we have work to do. An old wise Arab cannot deal with an American teenager who's trying to figure out whether or not they should marry a girl. I mean, are you breathing? Is she breathing? Do you enjoy talking to her? Then why are you wasting my time debating whether you should get married? Make a decision and get on with it because life is short. You know, we have lost this practical way of thinking now. Everybody wants to sit back as though they're eternal and spend you know, all this time, what should I do with my life? What's my place in the world? You have no place. You're temporary. This is the urgency. Now, people usually say what Paul is saying is that you should stay a slave because Christ is coming quickly anyway. Fine. I'm okay with that. As long as you understand the metaphor of the Lord coming quickly as a metaphor which pertains to the fact that there is no time. You have to, as Paul says, redeem the time. It's not a theological statement. Redeem the time doesn't mean go back in time and undo the sins of the past. Redeem the time means don't waste time. The days are evil. Let's get busy. So on the one hand, he's setting you free from slavery in the way that J.K. Rowling sets Dobby free from slavery. But he's saying that the only value of being set free is so that we can get busy doing the work of the gospel, which is why I love her character so, so much. So what he is doing is trying to remove the paradigms that we biological human beings who live under masters and under governments and under oppressors of all different kinds, and removing that as a paradigm and saying that paradigm is just simply irrelevant. You need to put it to the side so that the only paradigm you have is service for the sake of love. Exactly, because the issue is the life of the world. If you want to understand what I'm saying about Paul, go watch the old movie about H.G. Wells' time machine. Tell me about the importance of your government's power when you see how civilizations rise and fall in that one little plot of land in London until finally you get to the end of civilization and everyone is stupid and the books are failing. 
the reason that's the situation at the end of civilization is because the clergy weren't doing their job of teaching and preaching. It's as simple as that. That We are fighting for an alternate end to the timeline where the gospel is still preached and where people are still fighting to love each other, irrespective of all the temporary kingdoms of men that have risen and fallen. That is what is at stake here. It's a big deal. God created life not for us to squander. So the gospel is not only teaching you to love, but it's also the means by which you are able to love. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you are set free only to love, not for you. If you are enslaved, you are enslaved to love. If you have fleshly freedom, it was given to you in order to love. All things for you as a Christian are a sign that it is time for you to get off of your seat and love your neighbor. This is how a biblical Christian can refer to the will of God. The will of God is not something you discern. This, the discerning the will of God is one of the filthiest, ugliest Christian expressions of the last, I don't know, how many centuries. You don't discern the will of God. It's written in front of you. Love your neighbor. Right. You don't even have to discern who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is right in front of you. Christ gets upset in the gospel when he's asked, who is my neighbor? And he tells the beautiful story of the heretic who did a better job of taking care of the abused person than the priest and the, the Levite. So that's it. So what am I saying about providence? If you accept this, and this is how you view the world, everything is the will of God. Something bad happens, it's the will of God. Something good happens, it's the will of God. And your premise is that all things work for the glory of God, which means the glory of his teaching, which means the glory of your defeat, your crucifixion, which means that everything is a sign of providence unto love. And you rejoice and give thanks in all things. Then you can look back at your life and be grateful because you realize that in the good and in the bad, in the lifting up and in the abasing, God's hand was in everything. God's hand was in all things unto his glory. So I'm very passionate about this, and I give thanks to God that because of my experience, just growing up as an Arab American, I see the value in patriarchal systems. I see the value in traditional ideas of authority, not in the outliers of abuse that psychologists cling to to undermine the whole system, but in these societal structures. I'm not saying that we have to be an authoritarian society, but I reject anyone who tells me that the egalitarian society is more advanced than the authoritarian society. I think this is incorrect. And it's anti-Pauline, because Paul could be in any of those systems and function correctly. So don't impose. Stay, as Paul says, as you are, and love your darn neighbor. Thank you very much, Father. Thanks. I'm going on vacation. In fact, as you're listening to this, I'm on vacation. <laughs> so I'll be more mellow next week. Sounds wonderful. I hope not too much more, Mel. That was a good one. All right, take care. <laughs> Thank you. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.